welcome to another episode of the More Than A Game podcast. And joining me on the podcast today is a man that needs, well, really no introduction. Uh, he's had an amazing career playing at the highest level in this country and around the world. And he's a former boomer, he's a two-time Olympian, a former NBL Rookie of the Year, former NBL Champion. And again, he's had an incredible career and I'm speaking of none other than Mark Worthington. Mark Worthington, welcome to the More Than A Game podcast. Thanks for having me. Uh, so many formers in there. Um, yeah. I feel like a former player right now. Yes. Well, this is what we are, aren't we? So, um, yeah, absolutely. We look, we look forward to jumping into your career today, mate, and diving into your story a little bit more. But uh, before we do that... I'd, It'd be amiss of me not to get your thoughts uh, on the current NBL season because we are at this moment in the middle of the NBL playoffs and seen some amazing games. One of your former teams, the Sydney Kings, have made the NBL Grand Final Series. I'm going to use that word again. Another of your former teams, <laughs> they're battling out, uh, battling it out against uh, the new team, the Tassie uh, Jack Jumpers. So, first of all, what are your thoughts on who's going to win that game between? Uh, the Melbourne United, uh, Melbourne United, and the Tassie Jack Jumpers, um, and who wins the Grand Final series after that? Yeah, well, first I was a little bit surprised that Illawarra couldn't steal one game uh, against uh, the Kings, mm. and I really thought their greatest strength, which was shooting, turned out to be one of their greatest weaknesses. Because mm. uh, when they tried to make things happen in the fourth quarter, and they were just firing up blanks. It made it really hard. Credit to the Kings and what they've been able to do uh, this season. I think Chase Buford's been a really great coach for him, uh, especially after the rocky start. Mm. Uh, Jalen Adams has been a revelation. And obviously, I think that lineup, once they go, you know, DJ Adams, Ian Clark, Xavier Cooks, uh, and Jarrell Martin is just so deadly for any team to contend with. And, mm. um, not only do they have the offensive power, but they've got guys that made winning plays, uh, especially in that second half. Flip over to the Melbourne United uh, Tasmania series. Kudos to the Jack Jumpers. Like, what a fantastic season that they've had. And even though I think they come up a little bit short, I think the game is going to be really entertaining. Like, they know, I think what Scott Roth has done really well is alleviate any pressure from this group in the back end of the season. There was no pressure to make the finals. They've made it. There was no pressure for them to win an NBL uh, finals game. They've done that. And now he'd be telling his troops just a couple of hours out, this is a free swing. Like, let's let's go out swinging. And uh, mm -hmm. I expect it to be a tough contest. I expect Melbourne United to still win the game. But, uh, man, it's been a lot of fun watching the Jack Jumpers this mm -hmm. year. And, Absolutely. No, no one gave them a chance. I don't care what anyone says in the media that they said that they were the biggest fans or they were going for them or, mm. you know, no one had them as a finals contender at the start. And uh, Scott Roth is, should be commended for the job that he's been done. He's done this season. Yeah, it's been encouraging to see the community get behind them as well and sealing out those stadiums has been great. But if it is Melbourne United, Sydney Kings, who didn't get to it at the end of the day? I think it. I think it will be Sydney. Mm. Um, Melbourne's one of Melbourne's great strengths is their point guard pressure and defense to take teams out of out of their system. Mm. Um, if I looked at game one of Tasmania Melbourne, 
you could see that Tasmania had to start all their sets really spread out, really high, and not in the positions that they want. I think they made a good adjustment in game two. But when you're trying to do that with someone of the calibre of Jalen Adams or an Ian Clark, spreading your defence out so far allows for penetration, and those two are really great at getting into their mid-range game and then not only scoring at a high clip but facilitating at a high clip. And so I'd have to give the edge to the Sydney Kings uh, no matter who makes it through between Melbourne and Tasmania. Mm, absolutely. be interesting series, no doubt. And... Uh... Yeah, it's always a good uh, series if it is Melbourne United and Sydney. They always uh, give a good account of themselves. So, Well, it, it all started back when the rebranding of Melbourne United happened. And mm. um, I think the, the slogan that was up yeah. in the stadium all the time was go hard or go to Sydney. Yeah, right. And uh, uh, ambitious, to say the <laughs> least, the slogan. Um, but as, all, as long as I can remember, when I was at the Kings, you know, the Kings-Tigers rivalry, mm. uh, now United and Kings. It's just, um, it's great for sport. It's fantastic. And, um, you know, as anyone that's ever lived on the East Coast in Melbourne or Sydney, you know, you always want to have bragging rights regardless. And mm. um, it should be a good series either way. But, man, if Tasmania can get this done tonight, mm. I'd, I'd be... I'd be so excited for Tasmania, as, as I'm sure majority of the country, if you're not a United supporter, would be. Absolutely. Let's hope that's an upset. It'll be a good series, I reckon, if it is. So. Yeah. Uh, but you mentioned those two clubs, mate. You played for both of them. Uh, not the Jack Jumpers, but Melbourne and Sydney. And um, you've had a storied career. Uh, but if I can rewind the tape a little bit and go back to when it all started for you, it's a lot, question I love to um, ask all of our guests. And uh, I guess just to, uh, to share a little bit about uh, how you got into the sport of basketball, how you came to play it, and uh, but also did you ever think you could achieve uh, all that you achieved uh, in the sport of basketball back then? Yeah, <clears throat> so my parents both played basketball growing up. My dad um, was really talented. Uh, he was going to make an Australian junior team, but uh, the tour got cancelled. Um, and he, I mean, he was he was a he was skilled as a as a player back then. My mum loved basketball, uh, didn't have much in the way of talent, but was just a hard worker, hard nosed. Uh, she played state league um, at the age of like forty or something like that. Like it was oh, yeah. ridiculous that she played her first state league game, the old SBL, yeah. you know, which is NBL one now, the mm -hmm. Slammers. And so I think I was pretty fortunate that I got a bit of the skill side from the, the old man and um, the determination from mum. Mm. Um, but, you know, them taking me to basketball trainings as a kid and I, I was always a part of it, always around it and wanted to, to do it. Mm. Um, I was also pretty good at football. Uh, and so when the decision came, is it basketball or is it football, I chose basketball because um, a little bit ambitious back then, but I always thought that, basketball could take me to the Olympics where football couldn't. And my ultimate goal was to play Olympics mm. for Australia. Uh, pretty fortunate that uh, that all happened. Yeah. Um, I left high school at the age, well, after year 12, I got picked up as the Taipan's first ever development player. Uh, even though development players didn't play games back then, I was training with Aaron Traher, Anthony Stewart, Ben Knight, Dewey Michaels, um, 
and Guy Malloy as the coach and John Dorge as an assistant. Mm. Um, while I was there, I got contacted by Mike Dunlap, the former Adelaide 36ers coach, now uh, part of the coaching staff at the Milwaukee Bucks. And he offered me uh, a full ride to Metro State, which we all know now has been a fantastic pipeline for a lot of Australians. Uh, do four years there, pretty successful four years um, overall. And um, the phone call, I wanted to go back to Cairns to sort of repay the faith that they showed to me um, as a 17-year-old. Um, but Alan Black told me that I wasn't good enough to be in the team wow. back then. Um, and Perth made an offer with no guarantees. They sort of said I'd be the 10th man. And the Sydney Kings, who had just come off three championships, said we'd probably see you as our starting small forward. Mm. And so I was like, well, if one of the lower teams in Cairns don't see a position for me, Perth... Um, value me just as a local coming home but don't really value me as a player and the team that's just won three championships sees me as a starter mm. uh, with a national team coach then it sort of all made sense to go to Sydney so yeah. that's how my path to Sydney uh, was created. Yeah and uh, I was saying to you just uh, before we started here I remember when uh, coach Billy Tomlinson picked you up from the airport you came and watched our game uh, for the Southern Sharks back then that's when I first um met you but um going back to to gorge and the influence he's had in your career i couldn't think of a better platform to start your career than in that team off the back of three championships i couldn't when i look back at the your career i couldn't believe you didn't win a championship there i thought you were there for one of them but um you're a part of the grand final series i guess <coughs> but yeah what was that like being under gorge and the foundation that was laid for your career in those early years at the kings yeah i i'm really in debt to gorge at the end of the day, um, I know Gorge sort of comes with this, you either love him or you hate him sort of persona. Mm. Um, and it's funny because I, I caught up with Gorge in the last round while they were over in Perth and just watching a training session that he has just as much passion for coaching now than what he did when he was coaching me, which is incredible. Mm. Since it's been 18 years since he's coached me or something around that. Yeah. yeah. And um, I sort of look, look back at it now and um, Gorge taught me more than just basketball. Um, he taught me how to be a pro uh, and, and it was off the back of spending four years with Dunlap who prepared me to become a pro and then mm. when you step into this arena, there's no one there to hold your hand or tell you what to do. It's off the back of the work that you do and it's not to say that Gorge and I didn't have our differences at time. But I, I sort of knew at that stage that I was Gorge's workhorse as well. And mm. he had value in what I was able to do, not only defensively, but, you know, offensively as well. So um, the first year was a little hit and miss if I look back at it and sort of look to see what I did as a rookie. Um, I probably didn't understand what being a professional meant at that stage, um, but definitely. You know, come year two, a great off-season with Nick Popovich, the strength and conditioning coach, um, walked into year two and, and knew exactly what I had to do. I, I, I changed my role from a small forward to a power forward. I knew my, um, my fitness was a lot better and um, I know I didn't have the 
quote unquote athlete's body at any stage of my career. But I don't think anyone truly understood the engine that I had and that I could continue to do that all day, um, which made me different to everyone else. In that, and we saw the revolution of all the small boards turning into power boards in the NBL off the back of Gorge changing me from a three-man to a four-man, essentially. Mm, absolutely. And some of the um, other players I've had in the podcast, have, you know, majority of them have been coached by Gorge, such as his influence in Australian basketball. But... You know, guys like Shane Hill, Chris Anstey, uh, Jason Smith, um, some great great players in Aussie basketball. But I guess, um, as you said, not only does he teach about basketball, but I guess broader um, life lessons and no doubt just from, not only from Gorge, but probably your whole career, something that I've been talking a lot about on this podcast are some of the life lessons that translate from playing the sport of basketball or any sport um, and then into life. So... Can you share a bit about some of those life lessons you may have been able to translate into your role now as a dad? Um, you know, I know you dabbled into coaching, uh, your working career. Uh, what are some of the key things that you've taken from uh, playing at such a high level and then uh, translating that into life? Yeah, I think the two biggest things for me is being self-motivated. Um, there's no instant gratification mm. in Every, anything that you do work-wise. Um, I know if we live in this world that we want instant gratification, but it, it takes hard work and you might not see or reap the rewards for the first six months, a year, two years and what you do, but you're just sort of chipping away at in the background to create your own success. And I think, you know, not only Gorge, but a lot of my coaches, they sort of let you be yourself until you need to be pulled into line and I think there wasn't too many times that that needed to happen for me just because you just continue to work on your craft um, in that aspect. So self-motivation is a big one. Mm. The second one is um, what do you like when no one's watching? Mm. Like it's easier to be a good guy when there's people around. It's easy to be a hard worker when someone's looking over your shoulder. Mm. But what if no one's looking over your shoulder and what if there's no one around? Mm. How do you act then and how do you behave? Um, in my current role, I work from home. It's really easy to get sidetracked and sit down and watch the NBA finals all day or, <laughs> you know, do, do whatever. But... If I'm not doing the work, then I'm not bringing in the business required. And so it's the, what are you doing when no one's watching you? Are you you're still working as hard as someone's watching you over your shoulder or someone important walks into a gym? Say if you're a young basketball player, are you training harder because a certain coach is watching you or are you going at the same pace that you always go at because you know that the repetition equals success in the long run? Yeah, that's awesome, mate. Some great life lessons there. And obviously a lot that our listeners can um, take on board for their own lives as well. But um, just uh, to touch on a bit more of your career and the great career that you did have, um, obviously you went to the Dragons, followed Gorge there and had um, success, winning the NBL Championship, I believe, 2009. um, Can you share a bit about that? Because that that club or that organisation didn't last all that long. I remember a lot of fanfare when it first... um, you know, started, you had the flamethrower on the court and no real team had them back then. Um, they do now, obviously, but 
Uh, what was it like being a part of that organisation, winning the competition, but then it falling over, as a lot of NBL clubs have? Um, obviously, Gorge again, um, having that um, ability to, to get the team over the line. But uh, what were your memories of your time at the Dragons? I love the Dragons. It was such a good club. Such, really? We had such a good team. I mean, you look back on our roster. Mm, mm. We were we, we were special and we were going to be special for a couple of years had it continued. Um, I think it, we had good ownership in Ruffy Jaminder, Mark Cowan, which definitely helped. We were definitely the first club that brought entertainment to games. Mm, yeah. um, like it, that, that was a spectacle back then. Mm. And like you said, majority of the clubs probably follow the same lead of what the Dragons was mm. uh, for those years. Uh, and then the overriding sadness that we couldn't continue something so cool. I mean, the year before they'd finished last, they mm. bring Gorge in, they bring myself in. We, we had a few pieces to the puzzle mm. um, and going from last place to winning a championship in one year with pretty much a brand new crew was was really really cool mm. and like i said we we had the the cattle to do it mm. you know we, we probably weren't going to be able to keep joe because he was off to do bigger and better things in his life um but i, I know for a fact we were about to bring in some pieces that w- would have helped us um go back to back and um I understand the reasonings as to why it didn't continue, um, which for majority of NBL basketball fans, uh, that's still a mystery. Mm. Um, but it was sad that the, the way that it all finished up and mm. how it went out, and it would have been great to keep people like Mark Cowan and, and Ruffy in the sport of basketball um, because they were doing things well ahead mm. of when where the NBL went to, yeah, I sure did. It was great. So it was great while it lasted, but it was a big couple of years for you because you made your Olympic debut the year prior, um, Beijing Olympics, and you're a part of that squad. Uh, it was a great squad too, by the way, after a pretty um, tough t- uh, 2004 campaign. But uh, I remember you—you uh, you actually got the opportunity to team up with guys um, like Paddy Mills, Joe Ingles, that you said at the very start of their international careers. Um, and you also got to play against Team USA. I remember the warm-up game you had before the Olympics, and that was a, yeah, I just remember watching it. It was such a great game, pretty fiery encounter from memory, and playing against the guys like Kobe Bryant, LeBron James for the first time. So, um, yeah, first of all, what was it like playing with Paddy Mills and Joe at the beginning of their careers? Did you see them becoming the players they are today? And uh, what was it like um, representing Australia at your first Olympics after saying, how you look that that was part of your reason for playing basketball was to play in the Olympics. Yeah. Um, first off on, on Patty and Joe, um, I don't think anyone would probably ex- would have expected to be at the cult status that both of them are at now. Um, I think that was anyone back then would, who would have said that? It probably would have been unrealistic. Mm. The one thing, um, and I mean, I got super emotional when the, the guys won a medal finally, mm. yeah. um, was that the journey for both of them to where they are now hasn't been an easy one. 
And everyone is, it's easy to say, oh, you know, they've got millions of dollars, they play basketball, you know. Both of those guys have put so much of their time, money, effort into getting Australia to that medal position. Mm -hmm. We sat back in 2005 after the 2004 Olympics and we saw the retirement of Gaze and Heel and Blahoff and, and all these great names that mm. had been representing Australian basketball for so long. Mm. We sat in a room up on the Gold Coast um, to go through like what our identity would be and that was the start of the framework of what we see today of the boomers' culture. Right. And um, what we said on that day has just been elevated and taken to a whole new level thanks to people like Patty and Joe, mm. um, Delhi, Bainsey. Mm. Like there, there are so many guys that have put so much time and effort into this to make it what it is today. And mm. hearing Gorge speak about the boomers' culture and him being of awe of something that he created or started back in 2005 to where we are now, 17 years later. It's a really cool to hear how those two in particular have just taken this thing on their back and, and elevated it to, to such great heights. Mm. Um, <clears throat> so kudos to both of those guys and to, to everyone that's, ever represented Australia. I think there's been a lot that's gone into it and so super proud of them. As far as my first Olympics, it's, I always say that I'm very fortunate to go to two Olympics because the first one your head just spins. <laughs> the expectations when you walk into it um, versus the reality of what it is and not to get caught in the moment of Seeing, you know, who's at the Olympics, the athletes that walk around in your in your presence, and for you to consider yourself an equal to them, mm. it's incredible. And I look back at Beijing and um, know that it's it was easy to get. I'm, I'm, I feel very fortunate to London and dial in a little bit more, and you know. I look about. I look back at the boomers' loss to to Spain in the medal rounds um, for a bronze, and Spain had been there, done that, and understood the assignment. I think we were very harshly done by and unlucky at the end of the day. But then I look at this one where Slovenia had never been in that position before, mm. versus compared to the boomers' guys, and because we had had the experience. Um, we were able to make the best of that opportunity in that moment. Right. And um, the same thing for the Olympics. I was lucky to get that opportunity at the London Olympics off right. the back of what my opportunity at Beijing Olympics, but, I mean, there was there was no greater feeling than, right. well, any time that I put on the green and gold, regardless if it was an Olympics, it could have been a, a, a friendly game in China or it could have been a friendly game in Perth. It could have been any of the games that, as long as I got to put on the green and gold and that number 11, I was pretty, that's probably the best moments of my life. Mm, that's awesome, mate. And uh, just on the, 
2012 Olympics. I remember you talking about um, on the NBL podcast. I think it was you were talking about matching up against LeBron, and well, the first time you matched up against him and trying to make uh, an impact and make make him known you're there, I guess. And it was pretty incredible hearing you talk about just the quality of the player and being so close to him, matching up against him. Can you share a bit about that experience and what it was like matching up against such a great player? Yeah, the first time I did it was uh, 2006 at the um, the Tokyo World Champs, and yeah, right. um, mm. my dad was uh, came over to watch me play, and um, I hadn't been playing a whole lot in my in a bench role, which I didn't expect to play. But um, Gorge had come to me versus Qatar, which was our last rob- round robin game, and said I'll be starting. Uh, against Qatar and I went out and had a, a blinder and top scored so I got to start against Team USA mm. in the crossover and dad had sort of said you know don't take a step backwards just let him know that you're there and you know you, you don't care who he is essentially <laughs> and so um, while good in theory probably didn't work out that great in reality <laughs> um, and you know the first First time um, I matched up against him, it was a jump ball. I decided to step on his foot, give him a bit of an elbow, just let him know he was there. He probably scrapped whatever call that they had on the first play to make sure that he could get the ball on the post versus me. Um, He went to the left block, which I expected. He did a little shimmy, which I expected going to the middle. I did not expect him to throw the elbow as hard as what he did into my gut's back. (laughs) <laughs> um, and basically, I tried to block him, but he, he threw it out to Shane Battier in the corner to knock down a three to start the game. Um, I did, however, keep him to six points in that game, yeah. and I had five points, but we lost by 40, so we don't really talk about that too much. <laughs> and, and that's the thing, isn't it, with these amazing teams? Like, I, I've watched so many games against Team USA that you guys have played, and you get so close for so long, but all of a sudden they just... They just take off and you can't stop their momentum. Um, well, I think, I think we, we knew that the fast break game for them was the key. And mm. even though we didn't feel the brief back in 2006, um, I feel like by the 2012 Olympics, like they, I don't think they had a dunk versus us in the mm. game. Or they might have had one dunk, but they'd had zero dunks in transition versus us. That's good. Mm. And the whole team USA comes the last moment and they just expect to out-athlete people. And I think we've seen a change in the guard mm. recently in the way that teams approach Team USA and, and how they go about their business. And mm. um, this past... Olympics, obviously, they were stacked with incredible talent again and um, what we'd saw from the world champs previously. But really, bringing them into a half-court game and making them make tough shots is the key to beating Team USA, which is easier said than done at the end of the day. But as soon as they get into a role and momentum and start fast-breaking and dunking on people and, you know, it just turns into something that you can't come back from yeah. and uh, the better teams are able to hold team usa into a half court offense at the end of the day and and try and execute them by um 
you know, the multiple ball screens, multiple ball player movement. As soon as you go one-on-one, it's um, like I said before, if you go like for like, mm. um, it's really difficult to beat those teams. But mm. if you do something a little bit out of the box where you can beat them, and you, we've seen in the last decade, teams playing better team basketball mm. at a high level will beat a Team USA team. Mm. Yeah, it's awesome, mate. So just quickly, you've played and matched up against both LeBron and Kobe. In your mind, who was the better player? <laughs> LeBron. Wow. Easily, easily as well. Um, Kobe was a fantastic competitor and obviously we had that moment at the London Olympics where he just tore us to shreds Mm. in one quarter. Mm. Um, But seeing LeBron's overall game and what he brings to the table, um, he's, he's an unbelievable athlete. He's can score if he wants to. He can pass. He's, he's a fantastic passer. His defense, the way he, that he moves around the court and covers ground um, is exceptional. Um, but at the end of the day, that whole Jordan, LeBron, Kobe debate, it's apples and oranges at the end of the day, mm-hmm. especially when it comes... I think you can make comparisons between Jordan and Kobe in the way that they were. And you'd take Jordan every day of the week. Mm. Try and compare Jordan and LeBron. To me, it doesn't make any sense. Like, let's just let's just accept that they're two really, really good basketball players mm. that did really, really good things for both their mm. their sides. Um, they mm. just went about it a different way. Yeah, well said, mate. Very true. Completely different players, but um, you know, obviously had a great career at international level and obviously in the NBL as well. But you spent some time overseas as well in Europe and Puerto Rico from memory and um, mm-hmm. had two stints at the Melbourne Tigers, shifted into Melbourne United. I thought it was fitting too when you, you had some, you finished your career at Cairns Taipans and your last game was in Perth. Um, mm-hmm. I'll come to that in just a moment, but I found it very interesting looking into your career. You didn't actually spend some time, any time at Perth. I would have thought, Growing up in WA, you probably would have uh, played for the Wildcats at some point. Um, so was there any inclination of going there at any point in your career or um, <laughs> just not wanting to go back there? Yeah, no, it came, came close a couple of times. Um, the, the big one is when I had agreed with Rob Beveridge verbally that I'd, I'd be coming to Perth, which oh, would right. have seen Sean Redditch out of Perth. Oh, yeah. um, but then a couple of weeks later... Um, Bevo got the flick. Trevor Gleeson came in, didn't want to rock the apple cart, I'm, I'm assuming, and so it never never happened. Um, right. So I came close a couple of times. They'd, they'd offered me multiple times. Mm. It's pretty funny when I go to the Wildcats games now. Um, I think a lot of people blame me that the streak's over as well because I was in the stadium. <laughs> um, so, um, but no, I... I think Perth has been a fantastic organisation for a long period of time uh, and it just wasn't, wasn't meant to be mm. at the end of the day and mm. it is what it is. Mm. I, I don't have any regrets on not going to Perth and, um, but yeah, it's hard not to be jealous of the success that they've had as a club as well. Mm, absolutely. Oh, definitely. It's been a great streak but um, as you said, you started your career as development play with the Cairns Taipans. You finished playing for them and again in that semi-final series in Perth. Um, well, first of all, why'd you retire? For me, it was, it's, at the time, I was like, wow, like, probably got a few more years left in you. I know you had some injuries and that, but 
uh, made the decision. But then obviously the to finish your career in Perth in that semi-final series, um, what was that like? Right. Um, yeah, it's funny. A, a lot of people say that I probably retired prematurely. Um, mm-hmm. I was going in, so the last 11, 12 games, 12 games of that season, I'd torn everything in my shoulder. Oh. Um, so I had to go in for my second shoulder reconstruction at the end of that season, which going off the first one was pretty much a 12-month recovery, which pretty much put you out anyway. Mm-hmm. And um, I didn't train a single session in those last 12 games, not one. I played 10 of the 12 games. There's only two games that I couldn't play, mm-hmm. um, but I was struggling to lift my shoulder up over my and was my shooting shoulder as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just, I was struggling with that. And plus, I felt like I'd done everything that I'd wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd say, had seen throughout my career players that were really good players that were happy to be bench players and continue on in that setting. Um, I wasn't, mm-hmm. <laughs> essentially. Mm-hmm. I've got probably too much competitor in me. Um, to to do that I, I had some inquiries the following year mid-season if i was interested in coming back mm. to help as a in a leadership playing role mm. um but it just it didn't feel right especially after the farewell that i got from perth um it's funny i did an interview with damien martin during the week mm. um at SEN, and damos said you know it's still probably the, the best send-off he's ever seen from any Wildcat or non-Wildcats player wow. um, at Perth Arena. And mm. um, I look back at it and, and it was a little bit poetic at the time playing for Cairns, the club that took a chance on me as a 17-year-old, finished my mm. career yeah. at RAC Arena in Perth, having a lot of that crowd, well, the crowd gave me a standing ovation on the way out and, mm. and cheering my name. Mm. Um, you sort of not many people get that opportunity and um, mm. Mm. I'm very very grateful for that moment mm. you know obviously doing it in front of friends and family in WA it was a pretty surreal cool moment for me and um, very appreciative uh, I'm now the only non-Wildcats player to ever speak at their Legends Lounge at the games um, <laughs> so Perth, Perth give me a bit of love now which is which is nice yeah that's great, mate, and uh, well-deserved too after such a great career. But as we finish up, um, obviously, you mentioned um, you can see it in your, your emotion. You're just such a passionate player, um, passionate about the sport, and and you, you took that onto the court. You're a hard-nosed player and uh, got under the nose of quite a few players. Um, but uh, as we finish up, what are you most proud of from your time playing um, at the highest level in your career? Yeah, like I said, <clears throat> any time I represent Australia, couldn't beat it, mm. couldn't beat it. Yeah. There was something special about seeing your own name on the back of the green and gold, mm. uh, wearing the number 11, which was both my parents' number as well. Um, I never wore 11 in the NBL, but 11 was my parents' number, so it was like my own little recognition to my parents. Mm. Um, yeah, you just you just can't beat that. Um, that far outweighs anything. Championships, accolades, 
anything like that was just i was so proud to play for australia and um i know a lot of people felt like i played better when i played for australia and i I don't know what it was i know my role wasn't to be the star of the team i know my role wasn't to be a sexy basketball player it was to be downright and dirty and just do all the hard-nosed stuff and um I love doing it. It was it was such whether I got to play mm. five seconds or I got to play, you know, thirty odd minutes. And mm. I guess when you look back at it, one game in particular sticks out to me. Um, and I played legitimately three seconds in that game, mm. and that was at the uh, for Brett Brown. Uh, we were playing against Angola. Um, they had the ball. Uh, down one with yeah I think it was about three or four seconds to go and Brett put me on their best player and um, got a stop to win the game essentially and that that just captured everything that I loved about playing for Australia it wasn't that I played the mm. the entire game it's I got called in for that moment and mm. you just do your job in the moment that needs to happen so very cool yeah absolutely mate you had a great career and it was a Tremendous uh, thing to, to watch it unfold as a spectator. And so well done, mate, on a great career. And thank you for joining us today. I appreciate your time. Mark Worthington on the More Than A Game podcast. Thanks, mate. Thank you.